everyone, welcome to a special edition of Truck Safe Live. We are live in Music City, Nashville, Tennessee from the Truckload Carrier Association Safety and Security Meeting. Um, so today's episode is going to be a little bit different. We're just going to spend some time talking about some of the uh, uh, some of the industry news that we've been talking about at this meeting. And, um, and uh, yeah, there's a lot to it actually, uh, quite a bit going on. So just wanted to spend some time talking about that. Uh, if you're here with us, say hey in the comments. Let us know you're here. And um, as we're kind of running through uh, the various topics today, feel free to chime in with your thoughts we'd love to hear uh, what you're thinking about some of these upcoming um, rule makings and, and other stuff like that so and uh, we are indeed in the exhibit hall so there will be a little <laughs> bit of noise so we apologize for that in advance but it's been great so far uh, we've had some really good sessions some really good speakers we had an opportunity this morning to hear uh, Dave Heller of TCA give a regulatory update very substantive thorough regulatory update it's always a pleasure to hear him give one of those updates uh, a lot of you are probably familiar with his updates we also got to hear uh, the FMCSA's executive director Jack Van Steenberg uh, give a presentation a bit of an update on the direction that the FMCSA is going to be heading with this administration, and there's actually some uh, upcoming activity related to the incoming administrator here. Yeah, so this coming Wednesday, so we've talked about in the past, um, we, the FMCSA has been without an uh, administrator for many years now. I think it's probably been, what, four or five years since we've had a, a full-time administrator. We've had deputy mm -hmm. administrators, um, and right now Robin Hutchinson is serving in that position of deputy administrator. Um, it's a position that requires uh, Senate confirmation, and so we, we've started that process, it seems like, for a few different folks and has, have never really pushed it over the finish line, but uh, now Robin Hutchinson is going to be up for Senate confirmation this coming Wednesday, so June eighth um, so it, it, Jared and I were just talking before we went live here we don't anticipate any significant hang-ups there but you never really know yeah definitely not a controversial uh, confirmation hearing but just with the polarized nature of everything that's happening in any of these Senate hearings. Uh, who knows what could happen, so that'll be interesting to see. But hopefully uh, confirmation occurs and we get some continuity in the office and the FMCSA can start pushing an agenda uh, in earnest with that administrator in place. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what kind of agenda we have. We, we have a feel for what the agenda is going to be. The, the DOT sets their agenda every year and we know what that kind of looks like. But we had talked about in, in past shows with um, with Robin Hutchinson, with her background working with the DOT in their office of, of policy. She had a lot of influence, as I understand it, over the infrastructure bill. So we expect to see quite a bit of uh, infrastructure related uh, work in the at least the, the short term. Primarily truck parking. Yeah, and, and keep in mind, we, we do have a published regulatory agenda for the FMCSA, but I wouldn't say that that agenda should be considered complete because if you, before Senate confirmation, if you have an incoming administrator and you publish an agenda with all of the items that you really want to tackle, then your Senate confirmation hearing could become more about the agenda that you've published True. and the things that you find important and don't find important. <laughs> so I think that we could see some additional things added to the agenda either formally or informally once the confirmation occurs. Yeah, definitely. So uh, keep your eye out for that. We'll, uh, we'll uh, report anything that we hear um, from that. I don't know that we'll hear anything this week, but 
uh, we'll see. Uh, we'll see how that goes. So that's one thing uh, to keep an eye out for. And then, um, you know, I think we've got a lot from Jack Van Steenberg's discussion this morning yes. that we want to talk about. Jack, he's uh, long. I think they, they said this morning that he's the longest tenured FMCSA official. Is that right? That's, that's impressive. <laughs> yes. He's been there for several years. Um, he's, he's had a lot of roles, too. A lot of roles. He's currently executive director and chief safety officer. So uh, right under the administrative position, Jack uh, deals a lot with policy there at the agency and kind of spearheads the, the rulemaking. So he gave us a, a lot of um, good takeaways, I think, from uh, helping us to understand kind of the agency's priorities nowadays and where things currently stand. Yeah, one of the one of the interesting things that he talked about, we'll just kind of dive right into these things that he was talking about and kind of summarize them as best as we can. Um, is is he talked about this crash data that's not necessarily published crash data as of yet, it's preliminary data, but I've seen some chatter about it already on LinkedIn today, so it seems like you know media's picking up on it. Uh, but essentially the crash data showed a 13% increase in fatalities with commercial motor vehicles. Which is really astonishing. Nuts, All yeah. the efforts that the agency has gone to to lower that number and to see it rise is very, very frustrating. And when we're talking about that 13% increase, we're talking about 2020 to 2021. Yeah, and you could tell Jack's frustration with it. Yeah, his frustration with it. You know, as Jared said, all these initiatives that we have, and uh, it doesn't really seem to be. You know, successful at the agency's primary mission, which is to reduce highway crashes. So uh, he expressed a lot of frustration with that. There were some other interesting tidbits to that data that, that he shared. Yeah, the uh, the other thing that was frustrating to absolutely everyone was the fact that of that 13% increase, those those fatalities, uh, that number, whatever that number represents, uh, 43% of those fatalities involved a driver that was not wearing a seatbelt, which just everyone was gasping at that that figure that's just astonishing yeah, and he me. said that was at the low end too of, of yeah. what it looks like so yeah for, almost half of the accidents involving a commercial driver who, who died in the accident was because not necessarily because but a, a contributing factor was that he or she wasn't wearing a seatbelt we've had you know the mandatory seatbelt laws in place for decades at this point well probably not decades but a long time at this point and it's uh, yeah frustrating yeah, it's, it's interesting. And I've talked to a couple of carriers, you know, following that general session where Jack and Dave presented, and uh, they, they would mention that they have, you know, termination policies related to seatbelt violations because they just take it so seriously. Yeah. And unfortunately, some some officers will actually write, instead of a speeding violation, they'll write a seatbelt violation thinking they're helping the, the driver out, but actually uh, could get them terminated. Yeah, definitely. Uh, another big data point that uh, Jack had mentioned was the, with respect to the drug and alcohol clearinghouse. Obviously, this has been in effect now for a couple of years. It'll be considered fully in effect January next year, 2023. Um, and for those of you not familiar with it, this is the centralized database that the FMCSA stood up a couple of years ago to uh, bring in data from all drug and alcohol testing of, of uh, CDL drivers. So they test positive for drugs or alcohol. And the idea is that that will get filtered into this database so that we know uh, future employers of that individual know 
the past, the history, and then whether that person has completed the mandatory return to duty process, going to see a substance abuse professional, and then going through the uh, follow-up tests that are required after you've tested positive for drugs or alcohol. So uh, we were having situations where drivers would, would test positive at one carrier, go to another carrier, and then um, just due to some gaps in the way that the regulations are structured, it wasn't always guaranteed that uh, the previous employer of that driver where he or she tested positive would get that information over to the new employer. So the idea was to kind of tighten up that process and, and make it uh, uh, you know, more visible into whether a driver, a prospective driver, has, uh, has any of those types of violations. So uh, some of the data that Jack shared about the drug and alcohol or drug and alcohol clearinghouse. So currently there, are, there have been over 125,000 drivers with drug and alcohol related violations. Uh, and the, the more interesting data point I think I took away from that was, and, and we've heard about this, but the extent of it is just crazy. Currently 90,000 93,000 yeah. drivers in prohibited status, meaning they're not eligible to operate a commercial motor vehicle for anyone because they've tested positive and haven't finished that return of duty process. Yeah, that was that was definitely an interesting figure to hear, and uh, Jack was referring to them as those prohibited drivers, um, and and he was kind of wondering why those drivers had not gone through the SAP process, um, and he did mention that it's kind of a pain to go through the process, and then he also mentioned, you know, carriers should be somewhat open or having a conversation about, uh, you know, taking in a rehabilitated driver. There's yeah. a lot of opportunity there, but we all know that there's very few motor carriers that are willing to really have that conversation and bring on yeah. one of those rehabilitated drivers. As lawyers, that just makes us nervous. Yeah. I, I mean, you want to give drivers a chance, a second chance. Obviously, everybody deserves a second chance. And if they've gone through the regulatory process that is out there to rehabilitate them, rehabilitate them and get them ready to drive again, you would like to think that, okay, we can, we can give them a second chance. But just the risk that comes, the highway accident liability risk that comes with using a driver who has tested positive for drugs and, uh, or alcohol in the past is just, it, it's hard to get over for a lot of fleets. Yeah, and we've talked about this on prior shows, but I think it's just really important, and this is a good chance to make the point that, you know, you got to have a conversation about this. How are you going to approach these drivers when they uh, come before you? you, you got to make sure that you're approaching these drivers uniformly, not making exceptions to whatever, you know, policy that you've created on how you address these drivers and how you qualify a driver that has been rehabilitated. It's an especially important issue now with the, the driver shortage, right? Because, you know, according to, I think, ATA estimates and TCA estimates, we're about 80,000 drivers short. I think Dave was saying that number could be upwards of 120,000 in the next several years. And so, you know, when we're in that situation where it's hard to find drivers to fill the seats, it certainly becomes a lot more tempting to put these drivers who have finished the process in the seeds and I think it's something that deserves a, a hard look. Yeah, uh, one more point on this. The the interesting way that the agency kind of combats the you know perceived damage that the clearinghouse is doing to the industry and the this driver shortage is, you know, well we had while well, we have ninety three thousand prohibited drivers out there still, we we had a, over a million CDLs issued from all the various state drivers licensing agencies. So that's the way that you can that the agency typically will combat that yeah. argument that the clearinghouse is damaging the industry. Yeah, and that kind of leads into the next. Uh, 
interesting data point that Jack shared, which aside from the 1 million new CDL uh, CDL issuance in the last year, which is a crazy number, the number of new entrant motor carriers just blew me away. Mm, yeah. uh, almost tripled over the last five yes. years or something. So last this last year, 2021, 111 new entrant motor carriers, new motor carriers applying for uh, a USDOT number, just nuts. Thousand. What did I say? You said 111. Yeah, <laughs> much, many more than 111. 111,000 uh, new intra motor carriers. Jack could knock those out. <laughs> yeah. No, but you know, 111,000. When you think about the fact that every new entrant of that 111,000 had to get a new entrant audit within 12 months, you know, that's a requirement. Yeah. That is a lot of legwork right there. You could tell Jack, that was making Jack nervous. You started sweating a little bit. <laughs> the agency's ability. <laughs> or inability to get to that. The regulations, as Jared said, require every new interstate motor carrier registrant to go through a mandatory new interest safety audit where somebody at the agency has to put eyes on this carrier. Now, these reviews, are, we've said in the past, are pretty uh, pretty cursory compared to the agency's normal reviews. But still, somebody's got to put eyes on that. And for 111,000 new motor carriers having to go through a new entrant audit in that first year. They make it even more cursory. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Check. No. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, but, so the number before that, so 2020, I think they said there were like 60,000 new yeah. entrant motor carriers, so doubled in one year. And they were speculating as to the reasons why that why that has been the case, why we've seen such a significant uptick in, in new motor carriers. And I think it was Dave Heller who suggested, and I think this is probably most mostly correct that it's not so much that these are necessarily new to the industry it's that maybe it's it's drivers who have long leased on to another motor carrier mm-hmm. who, owner operators who've decided to strike it out on their own and yep. uh, strike out on their own and, and open a new uh, their own um, their own entity and then they have to get a DOT number to do that so yep. that, that could be the explanation it's interesting and and also uh, when we're talking about the absolute increase in new entrant audits you know uh, Jack made an interesting comment that me and Brendan both picked up on that they wanted to uh, enhance, uh, well add to the in-person audits uh, in the coming 12 months, which I thought was an interesting point because I've always thought that the agency would ramp up their use of remote audits just because it's much more cost effective, you can crank out more of those um, but and you can also issue ratings maybe, maybe they're having issues with some of the ratings sticking, yeah. but I thought that was fascinating because the the increase in manpower that's going to require to increase uh, in-person compliance reviews. I thought that was interesting. I thought so too, because I think the data had showed, I mean, we've, we've, written articles about this, about the significant uptick in offsite audits, you know, rising year over year, you know, over a hundred percent for sure, especially during COVID. And the agency even went so far to change the rules to allow them to issue safety ratings mm-hmm. uh, following an offsite audit. It used to be they could only issue those ratings after an onsite audit. So now they've got the they've got the infrastructure that they need to be able to ramp up these audits anymore. But yeah, Jack said Jack indicated that they're interested in doing more on-site audits. So. Is, is that ability to generate um, ratings from those remote audits, is that a temporary thing? Was that, is that going to be clawed back? No, I don't, I, um, it's a good question. I don't think it was temporary. I think it was a, a you know, 
final rule that did that. Okay. I'm trying to remember. Just trying to understand why. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I don't know. But anyway, that's kind of what Jack's indication was that he would like to get more in-person audits. And and I think that may make sense more so on the new entrant side of things more uh, because, you know, new carriers coming in. One of the things that I've always thought that the that the FMCSA could do a better job of. I know it's not specifically their mission, their uh, their directive from Congress, but I always thought that it would they would be the entity best suited to do this was kind of an educational component mm-hmm. to all of the new entrant carriers. Certainly, FMCSA has a lot of content available on their website, but I think spending some time during those new entrant audits, just sitting down with the carriers and asking, uh, you know, letting them ask questions and, and providing answers i think that would do a lot to help improve compliance across the industry yeah and i will say the the vast majority of those investigators that are going to be conducting you know new entrants as well as focused and full compliance reviews i mean they're more than willing to answer questions i think it actually makes them a little happy when they get questions <laughs> from carriers that are you know good questions but uh definitely use that to your advantage i mean ask as many questions as you want um you'll you may end up pissing them off but uh <laughs> frustrating them but uh uh, ask those questions. They're probably going to yeah. be more than willing to answer them for you. And, and harder to do when offsite audits, for sure. Yeah. I mean, if there is just a, an investigator behind the computer, it, you're not going to get that exchange. Mm-hmm. So somebody says shout out to Brandon and Jared. Thanks for the one person tuning in to watch, <laughs> watch this live from TCA. All right, what else we did we hear from Jack? Uh, the speed limiter regulation conversation was pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, so there's there's still time left. To, to place comments, but they've already received 15,000 comments on, on this the first particular four, regulation. Four weeks, they've got 15,000 comments. And granted, uh, he mentioned that there's a lot of vetting that's involved with those comments, and a lot of the comments could be just someone signing on and this saying, sucks. this sucks, I hate <laughs> it. And then they go into this pile over here, and then the more substantive uh, comments will go into a pile that is, is going to be actually addressed, but they do read every single one of those 15,000 comments comments which they is do. interesting yeah and then jack said that uh so they extended the comment period now it's going to be open through uh the middle of july and he, I, I think it was dave heller who said that uh you know he expects like twenty-eight thousand total comments that the agency's going to have to go through so yeah uh, we'll see how that lands you could tell people in the room so it, dave heller had everybody in who was in the room raise their hands if they had already implemented speed limiters within their fleet it was a, it was a big percentage of mm-hmm. carriers and attendants who have already implemented voluntarily implemented speed limiting devices but um, then he showed a uh, it was a survey result of carriers who were in favor of it versus those who were not in favor vast majority of carriers not in favor of that type of, of limit although he he speculated that a lot of those answering may have been over operators yeah I it's a tough one. I mean, I I see more arguments, more valid, strong arguments against speed limiters just because of the disparity in speed limits that we find across the highways in the United yeah, States. I right. mean, you go to Texas and then you go to my home state of Indiana. I mean, the speed limits will vary drastically. Yeah. And if you create that disparity between, you know, the regular passenger vehicles, the key is flying around at 90 miles an hour yeah. and you're stuck at 67, uh, 68 yeah. miles an hour. It creates a dangerous situation. Yes, absolutely. So, I mean... 
I see the arguments against it, but it'll be it'll be very fascinating to to see the the comments that are in the substantive pile. <laughs> whoever uh, whoever gave us the shout out said this is Tim, but I know a lot of Tims. <laughs> there are a lot of Tims. <laughs> so Tim, what Tim are you? Uh, thanks for tuning in. Um, all right, uh, let's see what else. Oh, I, one other thing on the speed limit regulation, which I thought was fascinating, was a comment that that uh, Jack made. It may have just been him reading the room and the uh, collective kind of sigh when the speed limit regulation was discussed, but he, he noted that the agency doesn't really have a particular place that they'd like to end up with this regulation. They want to take yeah. in the comments, digest them, and then come to a conclusion. Yeah, so, so they've got 15,000 comments on a rule that hasn't even set what the speed limit is going to be on the, on the limited devices. So it's not even the final notice of proposed rulemaking. It's an advanced notice. It's an advanced supplemental notice of proposed <laughs> rulemaking. So there's all, it's, it's going to be years before we see anything like this going to effect. And of those 15,000 comments, it's probably the vast majority are negative comments. So Oh, there we go. It's Tim Tang. Oh, hey, the Tang. Tim, the Tang is on. <laughs> uh, okay, so another thing that, uh, just a quick point on, uh, we've had a whole show on this. Go back if you if you didn't watch it, but on the um, Safe Driver Apprenticeship Pilot Program. So this is the pilot program that the agency has proposed, or it's, it's going to go into effect here soon, that will allow a limited number of 18 to 20 year old uh, drivers to operate in interstate commerce. As we've talked about in the past, those drivers are currently limited to operating exclusively in intrastate commerce. So the agency has has started to stand up this pilot program that will allow 3,000 apprentices at the start uh, who are between the ages of 18 and 21 to operate in interstate commerce, provided they, they um, meet certain criteria. They have to have a, a safe driving history. They have to have certain technology installed in the trucks that they're going to be operating. They have to have a trainer riding with them. So that program, that the takeaway from today is, because I think they started talking about setting this up back in September of last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've been just kind of in a holding pattern, waiting for the agency to publish the application that a motor carrier is going to have to fill out to participate and to have drivers participate. 3,000 apprentices at the start, approximately 1,000 carriers are going to be allowed to participate, but there's going to have to be a vetting process. So Jack said today that he is expecting that application to be published in um, uh, late summer. Yep. So that's, so the, that's the, the latest update. They're going to begin accepting those applications from motor carriers in August or September, and that was yeah. just an estimation, but <laughs> it was a big step for him to actually give a couple of months that he thought we'd be, you know, accepting these applications. Yeah. And he also made the point that, you know, this isn't going to be like a shoe-in type situation. I think that you're going to have to be uh, able to demonstrate that you're a safe carrier in a lot of different ways. The regulation kind of lays them out a yeah. little bit, but um, I do think that that application process will be a little bit more rigorous than just a box checking situation. Yeah. From what I understand, they're going to be looking at uh, uh, safety related data for the motor carrier that's interested in participating. So SMS scores and yep. safety ratings and, and stuff like that. So yeah, we'll see where that goes, but that's the latest news. Uh, look for that in late summer, the application process. One thing on that, one thing, if you're a carrier that's interested in participating, something that Jared and I spent a lot of time working on thinking this was going to happen sooner rather than later, uh, we spent a lot of time developing a compliance package for carriers that are going to be interested in participating in that pilot program, 
where it includes uh, uh, like a like a, a comprehensive policy to put in place because I think our fear is that carriers are going to rush into this, get young drivers in the trucks operating in interstate commerce, and they're not going to have uh, great parameters around that and, and and keeping tabs on those drivers. And and our concern is that's going to raise kind of the risk profile in highway accident litigation. Mm-hmm. God forbid one of those drivers gets involved in a catastrophic accident. So we built out a policy, a written policy that we think carriers should consider putting in place. And we also built out some some of the forms that are going to be necessary to report activity. One That's one of the criteria to participate. Carriers are going to have to make periodic reports to the DOT. So we've got a whole package of that content available on our website, trucksafe.com. If you look it up. Yeah, that, that package will give you a great chance to kind of frame out your program and it'll make you think about a lot of different things and obviously you tweak those as you see fit to your operations but it's important to have those conversations have those policies in place and anticipate what your insurance is going yeah. to do yeah definitely with those talk young with drivers. your insurer. yes and and you know i've talked to a lot of carriers that if they have a part of their operation that is intrastate and they have the ability to already be tapping into these younger drivers between the ages of 18 and 21 in intrastate commerce a lot of them have chosen just to not do that strictly from a risk profile standpoint and I think that it's going to be interesting to see how the industry responds if, if there's a thousand motor carriers that jump into this yeah. that'll, that'll be pretty promising I think so yeah. it'll be interesting to see well, and the whole point of the pilot any pilot program is data gathering so mm-hmm. we'll see what the data shows the pilot program is going to run three years we'll see what the data shows in terms of these younger drivers and, and their ability to safely operate yep uh, okay, uh, another quick one here that we learned from uh, Jack is the agency's stance on the on the COVID-19 emergency exemption that they have been continuously renewing since the uh, onset of, of the COVID-19 pandemic. So this is an exemption to virtually all of the safety regulations except like drug and alcohol testing and certain hazmat uh, components. So things like hours of service for sure, driver qualification, those types of things. Things. There's an exemption available to carriers who uh, are providing direct assistance to emergency relief efforts. So hauling, like um, testing kits and stuff like that. That that exemption has been in place, available to those carriers going back to 2020, and is still in place. The FMCSA recently renewed it again. Uh, and so the interesting thing about that is they've continued to kind of carve away at it, but it still is a pretty comprehensive exemption. And one of the things that Jack mentioned today was that the agency is considering clawing back a lot of, of that. In other words, um, making the exemption very more, uh, much more narrow going forward to potentially only hours of service and hours of service exemption. So no exemption from driver qualification requirements, etc. So we'll see how that plays out. Uh, no firm date on that yet. But. Um, another interesting thing that Jack talked about was... Um, he talked about safety fitness determination changes that might be coming and he kind of criticized the way that certain carriers are able to get a satisfactory rating from a full compliance review maybe 10 12 years ago and just kind of sit on that and get no uh, enforcement related activity which i i don't see a problem with that i think if their scores are fine they're not being escalated for enforcement activity what's what's wrong with them sitting on a satisfactory rating uh if you're going to put them back to not rated that's another 
another thing uh, because not rated and satisfactory. I mean, it, you know, insurance won't look down upon either of those things. Yeah. But to say that uh, they need to be escalated in some other factor a little more heavily than other it, other carriers that have not not had uh, enforcement yeah. activity recently. I mean, it's a little it's a little bit of a stretch for me, argument wise. But you know, he he commented that they're working on something to potentially pilot in that area. And I thought this was the most interesting comment that he made all morning of all of all of the various regulatory things he was talking about. The safety fitness determination was the was the thing I didn't really expect to hear from him. Yeah. Um, it, so many of you may recall. Uh, it's probably Jared and I were trying to remember this. It's probably been five or six years ago. Mm-hmm. The agency had toyed with, I think they had actually proposed a rule that would have completely overall, overhauled the safety rating methodology. It would have moved away from this three-tier rating of satisfactory, conditional, and unsatisfactory to a single determination of fit or unfit. And the biggest issue that caused this as I understand it, to not move forward was that rather than the existing system where you only get a safety rating if the DOT comes in and does a comprehensive audit, either offsite or onsite. Now, that's the way, that's the only way that carriers get a safety rating. Now, the proposal back then was we're going to tie this to your, your SMS, your CSA scores, mm-hmm. so that if you uh, perform poorly in a particular category in one of the seven basics in a month, now they weren't going to use this. They were not going to use the same intervention thresholds that are present now to determine whether you're going to be escalated for enforcement. They had they had proposed to set new thresholds where, if you exceed that threshold in a month in a particular month, you're going to get an unfit rating, uh, and that was a huge concern to the industry because a lot of carriers have scores that are above the alert threshold. Now it would have taken more to get them above whatever this threshold was going to be called, but still the idea of tying a carrier's safety rating to their SMS scores, particularly with the history of. CSA and the problems that we've seen with its data and the concerns that the industry has expressed for many years about the reliability of the system, that just didn't sit well and that uh, the agency ended up withdrawing that rule uh, a few years back. And so now to hear that they're reconsidering something, now he didn't go so far to say that they're thinking about tying this to SMS scores or CSA scores or anything like that. He just said that the agency has a team that's working on reevaluating safety fitness determinations, and that's got me a little concerned. Yeah, he he did mention unsafe driving when he was talking about you know potentially finding a carrier to escalate for enforcement activities. Say they have unsafe driving uh, activity that yeah. would lead us to to want to revisit their safety rating. Yeah. So he's focusing on unsafe driving there. It's unfortunate that you know with with the prior um, proposed regulation uh, it was such a small snapshot for a carrier yeah. so if you're gonna look at the data uh, the bigger the snapshot the better obviously if you're gonna look at a, a at a 30-day period yeah I mean you could have a bad month and uh-huh. it could sink you uh, under that prior train of thought I, and I don't want to you know throw the the warning alarms yet because we don't we know nothing about it but my concern is the the safety fitness determinations are such a critical part of the agency's Mm -hmm. regulations now i mean they dictate whether you as a carrier get to stay in business or not if you get an unsat rating you're going to be shut down fleet-wide and so the consequences are so severe i mean certainly with csa and sms there are consequences you could be escalated uh for enforcement for an audit you could lose business if your scores are high your insurance premiums could go 
up, but you're generally not going to be shut down because of high CSA scores unless they come in and do an audit. But with your safety fitness determinations, you very well could be shut down if they find enough violations. So toying with that whole concept that has seemed to work okay for the last uh, couple of decades makes me a little nervous. Or even conditional ratings. I mean, yeah. if you get a conditional rating in the current environment where insurance costs are already rising year over year and you take a conditional rating, obviously your ratings, your, your insurance premiums are going to suffer from that. You could lose business from a shipper standpoint, from a broker standpoint. So that conditional rating is not something that a lot of carriers can really just stomach for a long period <laughs> of time. Although we do see it on yeah. occasion. We'll, we'll come across a carrier on occasion that's had a conditional rating for years. Since and, the 90s. Yeah. yeah. Especially <laughs> private carriers. I mean, it's much easier yeah. for private carriers to live with a conditional safety mm-hmm. rating just because they're they don't have any uh, shipper or broker customers who are looking at those scores and getting worried about them. So you'll see you'll see private carriers that have had conditional ratings since the night before the FMCSA was even around. So <laughs> uh, Federal Highway uh, regulated safety before FMCSA and then the Interstate Commerce Commission before it. So uh, so that's safety fitness determination. Again, I think that was one of the big takeaways from the conversation. Absolutely. And I, I do think that if we do see some iteration of that uh, safety fitness determination program, that it's probably not going to be such a cut and dry move. I think that the agency learned that the cut and dry fit or unfit approach may not be the best if based yeah. on that data. So Yeah. And there for sure, will, it'll have to be done through rulemaking. And, and that did Jack, did I get this right? Did Jack mention that maybe a negotiated rulemaking? They were considering doing that through the negotiated rulemaking process. So that'll be interesting regardless or, or suffice it to say, it's going to have to go through the rulemaking process. There will be an opportunity for comments. I'm sure if we've got 15,000 comments on the speed limit or rule that one, we're going to have a, a ton of comments. So Indeed. We beat uh, that dead horse. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> uh, a couple last things here. Um, this was an interesting one. Jared, you want to talk about this idea of clean inspections for trucks that go through way station bypasses? Yeah, that's. it was, it was pretty interesting and kind of refreshing to hear him talk about this. I think everyone in the room at TCA really appreciated it. Um, talking about those carriers that get clean inspections don't always get reported. Um, and so it's really difficult to get your scores where you want them to be. You know, we, we deal with carriers on a regular basis that they'll ask us, how, how can we get more inspections? You know, we need to get clean inspections and all we're getting is, you know, dirty inspections reported with violations and it's killing our scores. And there's really no good answer to that. But, uh, Jack Van Steenberg talked about, uh, a, a program that's being discussed at this point to award credit, um, and, and create you know a positive environment on those um, inspections that aren't actually level one inspections with violations, which is oftentimes what gets reported. So yeah. uh, those inspections that where you might cruise through uh, the inspection and, and have a clean inspection, yeah. you get positive feedback for that. Yeah, he mentioned carriers that use the technology that's out there that the way station bypasses essentially where if you're, you're clear to bypass way station, you would get some type of a clean inspection credit for that so that it can help your, your uh, your scores over time. So that'll be interesting. Yeah, they might get 15,000 comments on that one too, (laughs) but positive ones. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, Okay, last but not least, um, Jack talked some about, uh, very little I should say, about autonomous vehicles and Mm -hmm. where the agency is with that. I think um, he kind of put it, it seemed like put it off a little bit on NHTSA uh, because this is going to be a a joint rulemaking that's going to have to be in place where you've got the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Is that right? Yep. Did I get that right? It's a- um, 
dealing with this on kind of the vehicle manufacturing side of things and then certainly fmcsa on and the usdot the broader usdot is going to have to weigh in on this too so you've kind of got a bunch of different agencies all under the umbrella of the dot that have to weigh in on on autonomous trucks so uh he didn't really have much to say about it other than the agency is working on it so yeah and as as technology progresses i think we're definitely going to see more of these uh regulations that go in place that are joint fmcsa and NHTSA, or at least uh two different arms one yeah. regulation coming from NHTSA and one coming from the fmcsa that kind of get to the same type of subject sub- subject matter but yeah. with the autonomous vehicles um NHTSA is regulating the oems and they're regulating the uh fmvss the standards for the vehicles being produced and and so it's going to be really fascinating to see what they do with the autonomous vehicles and those standards that they put around autonomous vehicles it's absolutely overwhelming to think about like what kind of regime you could put in place to ensure uniformity on on some level of autonomous vehicles i mean we looked at what the fmcsa did with elds and the self-certification regime the fmvss is a similar regime it's self-certification um what we've learned from the eld process and that self-certification process surrounding technology is that maybe self-certification is not (laughs) ideal so we saw the canadian eld mandate they went away from self-certification and they have a third-party body that's certifying elds yeah the numbers that dave shared today so granted Canadian or Canada is working on kind of rolling out the mandatory ELT, but he's, I think he said there were 48 uh, Canadian ELDs certified versus the 500 plus that are sort of that are self-certified in the U.S. But yeah, I, I just think that uh, if you're going to have a certification process surrounding autonomous vehicles, it, I mean, it really needs to be some sort of a third party and not a self-certification process. That's just my opinion. Hopefully, we see that, and I think it's just a long, a long time before that actually. Yeah, it's the streets, to be honest. <laughs> uh, okay, so lastly, kind of a similar deal with uh, automatic emergency braking systems. This is kind of another deal where it's going to be a joint NHTSA and FMCSA rulemaking. Uh, Jack just said that the agency is working on it, similar to the autonomous uh, trucks. So uh, that, I think that wraps it up. That's um, that was kind of Jack's presentation, and then Dave Heller gave kind of a more in-depth presentation on on the current status of, of rulemaking with the FMCSA. So yeah. It's been a great event so far. We've uh, truck safe. We've got a booth set up here in the exhibit hall. Met a lot of great people. Um, if you're here uh, and watching this for some reason, uh, stop by, say hi. Uh, we're going to be here today and tomorrow. Um, yeah, and, then, and, and check out TCA conferences too. Um, I've been really pleased with this conference. Everyone's been really nice and inviting. It's our first time here, so you know we've met pretty much everybody that's been <laughs> here. Everyone stopped by. It's been really great. So yeah. if you're looking for you know new conferences to attend, check out TCA. It's a great group of people a lot of great content uh, as well so yeah definitely check that out then lastly to wrap things up here we just wanted to kind of highlight some of the things we got going on at truck safe coming up here pretty soon Uh, one thing that a big announcement for us is that we just recently launched our uh, hazmat training course online training for hazmat employees so whether you're a shipper or a broker or a carrier if you've got folks that are uh, involved in the highway transportation of hazmat even if it's just 
just filling out shipping papers or marking boxes, et cetera. Um, whether you know it or not, those hazmat employees have to receive mandatory training uh, on um, hazmat awareness, uh, general hazmat handling type stuff at least once every three years. And so um, we had on, had on our uh, radar for a long time to, to build out that training and offer it as part of our Truck Safe Academy, where we offer a bunch of other uh, courses, safety manager courses, stuff like that. So we finally finally built out the hazmat course. Uh, it will help carriers and shippers and brokers satisfy that training requirement. It's all online. Uh, anybody who takes it will will get the uh, educational sessions. They'll also be tested, uh, and then they'll receive the certificate that you need to place in their file to show that they are uh, that they are compliant with that training requirement. Yeah, and gone are the days where you roll in the cart with the DVD player and you dust off the old DVD for the hazmat training and plop it in there with the dated graphics and whatnot. Yeah. You know, our training is online. It can be completed in segments. And so it's, it's a, just a great way to do it. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, one of the things I think we've mentioned in the past, Jared and I don't pretend to be hazmat experts. We deal a lot with hazmat issues on the legal side of things, but we're certainly not hazmat experts. So we, we want to team up with somebody who is a hazmat expert, and that's what we did. We teamed up with Art Fleener of Fleener Consulting. Uh, Art was with the with the FMCSA for 20 plus years, uh, essentially kind of running the hazmat program for the Midwestern Service Center. Uh, has retired and now does consulting work. Art, uh, we work a lot with Art on on other projects, but Art uh, joined us and, and and does the training for us. So you're not going to find a better resource uh, to to learn about all of these required topics so check that out tim posted here in the in the comments check it out trucksafe.com if you if you're interested in that we've got it available there sure you want to talk about our upcoming summit yeah do we have a video for the summit or no. are we just gonna, okay nope. so august 11th and 12th we have a fleet compliance summit um i don't know if you can see it's there a little go. glare there uh, but we have 21 speakers lined up and a lot of different topics such as cargo security ic issues um, insurance just a, business structuring mergers and acquisitions big list of folks that are going to be speaking and uh, yet again we're bringing in the experts uh that are not ourselves we're not <laughs> pretending like we're experts on ic issues and things like that so we're bringing in the experts and that'll be august 11th and 12th to register um it's $150, very um, affordable. If you see a couple of subjects that you want to attend, you know, check those out. Um, Truck Safe Summit. Uh, what's the website, Brandon? TruckSafeSummit.com. Yeah, that makes sense. Check it out there. <laughs> uh, yeah, as Jared said, I mean, the whole the whole theme of the, of the summit is risk modern risk mitigation tactics for fleets. So on on all of these various issues that fleets are constantly inundated with, whether it be DOT compliance or, uh, as Jared said, independent contractor issues or nu nuclear verdicts. You've got all of this stuff coming at you. Um, come to the summit, hear from experts who are addressing each of these various areas of, of potential risk and, and hear practical tips for mitigating your risk in those various topics. So, yeah, again, August 11th and 12th, it's a virtual summit. Uh, so the other interesting thing about the summit is, in addition to all of those educational sessions, um, we're also going to have a virtual expo hall, um, mm -hmm. which is going to be pretty cool it's going to be a space within the zoom platform where you as an attendee can come in and check out all of our dozens of industry sponsors
sponsors, uh, vendors, great vendors within the industry who have a lot of services and, and great um, products to offer to the industry. You can come in and visit their booth, talk with their representatives, learn more about whether their product or service can uh, can uh, help your fleet and talk to them directly about that. So check it out trucksafesummit.com anything else we got going on jared we got a lot of things going on but (laughs) we got to wrap up today in nashville like brandon said it's been a a great trip beautiful nashville we're going to stay here for uh, another day or two and just enjoy nashville and uh, do some work from the hotel rooms maybe yeah definitely (laughs) well thanks for everybody who tuned in um certainly if you have any questions about any of the topics that we discussed today feel free to get in touch with us uh you can find us if you don't have our email addresses uh you can just find us online at trucksafe.com and we look forward to hearing from you thanks for spending some time with us see ya thank you